0: Good morning, so a few weeks ago, I typed Pastor Simon's address into my GPS because I was going to head out to his house for the second parsonage open house we had. Now I'd been to his house before, but it was snowy and I thought, you know, I'm just not gonna trust my remembering because I've done that before and it doesn't always work out. So I thought it would be simpler just to use GPS but when I was about half mile from when I remember usually turning right, she says, turn right. And, and so I thought, I'm not sure, but I'll follow it. So I turned right and then, and then she took me in this kind of loop and then she said, your destination is on your left. And I looked and I knew that was not the second parsonage. Um, And I did save myself from embarrassment by not getting out and knocking on the door. I turned off the GPS and I used my dead reckoning to find the Guevara's house. It worked, we were even on time. You know, I think a lot of times, many of us use GPS and most of the time it's reliable, right? But we all might have stories of time where it's taken you to a a vacant lot um, or to some place that used to be there and it's not anymore. For the most part, I'd say though, GPS is reliable. Is the Bible reliable? I mean, what is reliable, first of all? I define reliable as functioning as it was intended to function. I made that definition up, I think it's pretty good. Uh, The reliable Oxford English Dictionary says, consistently good in quality or performance, able to be trusted. That's a reliable definition too. But today we're asking, is the Bible reliable? And I want us to look at some different answers to this question. First of all, I'd like to ask the question, reliable for what? What is it supposed to do, right? We know what a GPS is supposed to do. It's supposed to function as a a real-time map for us that guides us toward our destination. And when it takes us to the wrong destination, it's not reliable. But what if, for example, we imposed a a different function on GPS than it actually has? What if we thought, well, the GPS will tell me where I want to go? Would it be reliable then? I don't think so. That would be a wrong use of the GPS. But I think that today, many people might think that the Bible is unreliable because they're asking it to do things that it was never intended to do. The Bible is not reliable in every way people have tried to use it. I'd like to say in regards to science, the Bible is not reliable. And I'd like to point this out because over and over again, the Bible implies that the earth is flat and that it is fixed in space. There's a lot of references we could look at, but I'd like to look at uh, 1 Chronicles 1630. Tremble before him, all the earth, The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. What does this mean, firmly established? That the earth does not orbit around the sun? Um, And then Isaiah 40, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. This is an illustration here of uh, the ancient Near East cosmology. You can see the little person like a grasshopper standing between the trees. Uh, He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, you see the canopy there, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. In this image of the earth, it's a circle, not a sphere. Is the Bible reliable? We all know that the earth isn't flat. Aristotle knew this, and in the 16th century, Copernicus developed the heliocentric model of the universe. The Bible therefore is not reliable in regards to astronomy or science. And this could be a problem if you think it is. But not only is the Bible unreliable in this way, it's also unreliable in regards to morality. If you read the Bible as expecting it to be a book of character examples of how we should behave. Have you ever spent some time with some of the characters in the Bible? They're pretty horrible. Um, So let's think of what some of the people do. David King David we read he was de- he's described as a man after God's own heart. He had eight wives, you know that? And one of his wives, his first wife Michal, he deserts to go live in the wilderness, and then her father Saul marries her off to another man, and then later when David becomes king, he's like I kind of like Michal to come back and be my wife. So he demands for her to come back and be his wife. And um, even though we had quite a few other wives at this time, and the text tells us how her husband, Paltiel, follows after her, weeping. I mean, that hurts my heart to read it. A man after God's own heart? And then um, there's also all kinds of sexual abuse in the Bible. Uh, In the 21st century, I like to say that the Bible is also a testament to me too. Uh, We can think of a lot of examples of this. Abraham's wife, Sarah. Hagar, David's daughter Tamar, Bathsheba, the young virgin Abishag, they hired to sleep with David toward the end of his life to keep him warm. Okay, that's weird, gives me the creeps. And it's not just women who are abused, it's men too. Lot was raped by his daughters. Noah's son dishonored him in some kind of way that scripture isn't even clear about, but it's pretty bad. And we haven't even gotten into lots of the other stuff, the wars, the battles, the beheadings. Is the Bible reliable? I mean, no wonder so many people are turned off when they read the Bible, even the New Testament. I've mostly been using examples from the First Testament, but the New Testament, Paul, good old Paul, he says stuff like, women shall be saved through childbearing. That's horrible. What about women who can't have kids? What about women who aren't married? You might wonder about this. I mean, and this seems to go completely against Christian orthodoxy that teaches we're saved through Jesus, not through childbearing. This is confusing, unreliable. And when read certain ways, scripture has also been used to support slavery, the subjugation of women, child abuse, racism, and the manifest destiny. And this isn't just criticism of atheists, this is my criticism. The Bible is an unreliable guide for morality if you approach it primarily as a book of moral teachings. And not only is it unreliable, it is also deeply, deeply disturbing. A caveat here, you know I love the Bible, right? You might think it doesn't sound like it right now. But we have to consider the problems here and I want you to sympathetically see why someone might say the Bible is unreliable. They have a good point. And I think the reason the Bible seems unreliable in all these examples I just gave is because we're going at it with the wrong questions. We're imposing our 21st century purposes on the Bible. We're telling the Bible what it should do, how it should function, rather than observing what it is and how it functions. There's a quote I'd like to show you on the screen, but my thing isn't working. Can you go to that big quote, Jack, please? The next one. This is a quote from uh, David Nival, who was the first president of North Perks. Go to the Bible with an eye only for error and contradiction, grammatical anomalies, historical errors, mistaken data and numbers, and the Bible is big enough for a scholarship of only these things. But go to it with an eye for the life that billows forth in mighty waves in the watercourse, burst here and there, and you will be rewarded infinitely more. The Bible is a world that should be studied with a telescope rather than a microscope. What a loss it would be to study the stars or the northern lights with a magnifying glass. Amen? So instead of imposing what we want on the Bible, I propose that we look at what the Bible functionally does already and what it does well. Rather than bringing our questions from the outside, we have to answer and ask from within and submit to the entire narrative of scripture. And thankfully, this is not a path we have to form on our own as individuals. We have the history of the Christian church behind us, 2,000 years, plus all the traditions of the Hebrew people that went before that, as well as the Holy Spirit. So here's where we are. As people in the evangelical covenant church, we affirm the centrality of the word of God. This means that our lives are centered around the story told in scripture, the story told in scripture. We have to remember that the Bible is not primarily a book of doctrinal statements or rules to live by, it's not a collection of characters for us to emulate, it's a story. It's a story made up of a library of 66 books books, writings, scrolls. The Bible is literature. Now, it's not just literature, but it is literature, and so we have to approach it as it is, as a book. So let's imagine, for example, that you want to study Shakespeare. Maybe none of you do, but I am curious. Any English majors out there? Okay, this is for you. Everyone else can learn from us. So um, when you study Shakespeare, does it do to simply study one of his plays? Or maybe to look in a Shakespeare concordance and pull out all the lines of the plays that have the word love in them. You might learn something, but you're not going to get the whole scope of the canon of his literature, right? You have to study each play as it was written to be studied, as a tragedy or a comedy or a history. You have to know the difference between the three. You have to study the sonnets. You have to learn iambic pentameter and the beauty that gives the English language, right? Now, truthfully, Shakespeare's pretty hard to understand today for those of us who might not have studied him. I mean, he was writing 450 years ago in a culture very different from ours. The rule of the English monarchy, there wasn't good plumbing. And when someone is described as having gray eyes, they really meant blue. This is the cultural stuff surrounding Shakespeare. To get Henry IV, part one, you really have to understand the War of the Roses, right? That's the context. And it's the same with scripture. But the Bible has so much more cultural stuff because it was written even longer ago and in different languages. And as Professor Walton reminded us last Sunday at the Covenant Conversation, the Bible is written within a completely different cultural context than our own. And so when we read scripture, we have to remember that we're entering the cultural river of people very different from us. And just like it's rude to travel internationally and insist that everyone around you do stuff the American way, use forks instead of chopsticks, for example, or drive on the other side of the road, so too is it rude for us to go to the Bible and expect that it will answer our contemporary questions. It might, but it might not. And if the questions we impose on the Bible are not the ones that it is answering, the Bible is unreliable. That's why it's unreliable scientifically. That's why it's not primarily a book about characters we should emulate. That's not the point. But the questions the Bible does answer, my friends, are the questions that are universally part of the human experience. So the Bible answers central questions universally asked by humanity. Who is God? Who are we? What is the problem? What has God done about this problem? What is he doing now, and what will he do? And how can we participate in what God is doing? So question one, who is God? Now, the scripture doesn't just tell us who God is. Like any good literature, it shows us It shows us with stories and poems. God is the one who creates with a word, who stands back and says, good. God is the one who created humanity to have relationship with them. And like any book, the Bible has a main character and the main character is God. All those stories I referenced earlier about the people doing horrible things, remember, those people aren't the main characters. The main character is God and the main storyline is God's. When we read these troubling stories in light of the grand narrative, what we recognize is God's constant presence, God's continued action of taking chaos and making order, God's consistent posture of stooping towards humanity to be in relationship with us. Second question, who is humanity? We're creatures made in God's image. This makes us different from the rest of the animals. And God made humanity to rule over the animals, to steward and to be in relationship with him and one another, to be vice regents, active agents who participate in God's work in the world. These are great answers, aren't they? I think these are really good news about who God is and who God has made humanity to be. This is a good story. But in this story, there's conflict, right? This is the problem. What is the problem with us and with the world? The story each of us are living in, it is not entirely good news. We know this from our own lives. The story of scripture tells us why. Humanity decides they don't really need God. I can do it my way, thank you. Humanity rejects God's guidance about what is good and what is evil and decides to choose for themselves. They decide to take their own path. You might think that I'm referencing Genesis 3, and that's part of it, but this story of humanity taking their own path is a story that's told over and over and over again throughout the First Testament, over and over in the chapters after that. The story is repeated. Humanity says, I'll do it my way, thank you. And when God establishes the Israelites, his people, the story happens again. Humanity rejecting God's presence and promises to live their own way. And so what does God do? God comes down to us, stoops down to us again, but this time fully human, to show us, show us in the flesh who God is, to do the work that God had originally intended humanity to do, to show us what it looks like to be a king. And this kingship looked totally different than what people were expecting, to die. And then to overcome the death that had entered into the human story when this story first turned south in Genesis 3. And God defeats death by dying. And Jesus rises again. But there's more. God still wants us to participate with him and his work. God's invitation here is not simply a one-time sealed and deal ticket to heaven. This is not just about your soul's eternal destiny, friends. This is about God's invitation for us to participate in the triune nature of God. This is about God's original intent for humanity to be co-creators in the garden, in culture, in our homes, in our workplaces, every place we go. And this reliable story is our story. This is the story of scripture. Now, maybe you've never heard it told this way before. That's okay. I think a good story can be retold in a variety of ways, just like a a good director can tell a Shakespeare story in a different setting at a different time, right? But the story is a reliable map of meaning. It's a reliable map of meaning for me. It gives direction and meaning to my life. I love stories, maybe you know that about me. I grew up reading the Bible with my dad He was a pastor and he would teach me and my siblings how to do inductive Bible study methods even when we were little kids. Um, And every week we'd meet and I would have had to do my homework assignment of study of the Gospel of Mark or maybe Ruth and Esther. I studied those a lot because I liked that they had women's names. Anyway, I learned to look deeply into the text even as a child, but I have to tell you the truth. My imagination wasn't engaged. I did it to please my dad, Because I knew you're supposed to as a follower of Jesus. The Bible hadn't yet, the story hadn't yet gotten under my skin. I can tell you when that happened though. It happened in the 90s when I was in college and I went to InterVarsity Christian Fellowships Urbana Conference when it was still held in Urbana, Champaign, Illinois. And there I witnessed the actor Bruce Kuhn perform whole chapters from the book of Acts. I was blown away. These people were real. They had feelings, they had hopes and desires, they had motivations, and God was at work among them. And this experience planted a seed in me that lay dormant for a few years. Fast forward a lot, I was working in educational theater, and to prepare for a particular project, I started learning Bible texts and performing them, just like I'd seen Bruce Kuhn do, probably not just like, but kind of like. And I have to tell you, this was absolutely transformative for me. People who learn, who memorize biblical stories and tell them by heart will say, you don't learn the text, the text learns you. And this is true. And after I'd done this for about two years, I was still working in the theater, but in the dressing room one day, I sensed the Holy Spirit saying to me, you're done. You're done. This isn't the story I want you telling anymore. He meant the stories we were telling in the theater. It was Anne of Green Gables, if you wondered. So not a bad story. But this isn't the story I want you telling anymore. I want you to tell my story. And I obeyed. That was almost six years ago. I left theater, I went back to seminary, and it focused on telling God's story. I have learned more about God's story in these last few years but not just learning, I've been actively a part of it. This is the difference between watching a play performed and being taken up on the stage to participate. And Not awkwardly, actually, <laughs> really naturally. God's story isn't a story we passively sit and watch. It's something we actively participate in. Maybe you've never thought about this before, but all of us are storied people. All of us believe some story deep, deep in our heart that gives us meaning. It could be a hopeless meaning. Maybe you think we're, maybe you believe the story of scientific materialism, in that we're all just bodies, and one day we'll die and decompose in the ground. And so, what really just matters is um, making sure you enjoy your life, right? That's a story. Maybe you think everything is fated by by God or by fate itself, and life is just riding down the river in a canoe without a paddle, waiting to see where it takes you. That's a story. Each of us believe a story. I'm here to tell you that there is a best story, a most reliable story, a story that gives hope and meaning, and this is the story of a God who gives hope and meaning. The story is reliable, my friends, but we can't stop there. I'm gonna tell you another story. This time it's imaginary, and I did not come up with it. This is from Alpha. So, imagine that you, for your birthday are the recipient of a beautiful new BMW 5 Series. Just shows up in your driveway and it's not from a family member so it didn't affect your shared bank account. And you are so excited to get it. You open the glove box and you pull out that Ziploc bag that holds the brand new manual. And you sit there in the driveway, in the car and peruse the manual, reading about all the Bluetooth technology it has, about what kind of gas you need to put in it, right? That night you take the manual into the house and before bed, you you stay up kind of late reading the whole manual cover to cover. The next day you think, you know, if I really wanted to understand that manual, I should probably learn German because it was probably written in German. and, And so maybe you download a German app on your phone so you can start learning German. And then you think, no, you know, actually maybe other people have insight about this manual that I don't have. So you look for a meetup of five series owners to get together and read the manual together and help understand what you don't understand, right? Is this a little ridiculous? <laughs> um, There's a problem, right? The point of the manual is not the manual. The point of the manual is the car and it's the same with the Bible. Now, this falls apart a bit because the Bible is so much better written than a car manual, but um, the, the purpose of the Bible is to lead us to a deeper relationship with the God who is present with us now. The Bible is to lead us toward our journey and on our journey with God, being part of the story, not simply reading about it. You can know a lot about God by reading the Bible. But you can also read the Bible and not know Jesus, right? Not know him personally. Just like you can read a car manual, never drive the car, right? But the purpose of the Bible is to point us to God, to set out a map for us to follow as we get into that car with Jesus, and also the church, and also the people who have gone before us, the saints, and go on the adventure of a lifetime. It is not enough to read the Bible. The Bible points us toward our telos, our end goal, the God who wants to be in relationship with us. We are surrounded by stories, friends. What story gives you meaning Which one gives you hope? Which one answers your deepest questions about the purpose of life and why we're here? I propose that the story of God from scripture is the one that does this the best. It's reliable and it gives hope. We're gonna do two more things today. First, I do want to encourage you to read your Bible. I know sometimes, for for many followers of Jesus, maybe the main time you read or think about the Bible is at church, which is a great start, but I encourage you to read your Bible every day, actually. Psalms are great to read, and also it's great to start with the Gospels. I especially recommend the Gospel of Luke today. It's also good to use solid resources if you have questions, right? We have that historical cultural gap, Which makes sense. There are some great print resources. I think you were given a bookmark when you came. On one side, it has some great resources, it has some websites, it also has some books I recommend on there. Um, If you have questions about the Bible, use a print resource. The internet these days is a wild west. So if you Google questions about the Bible, you might find weird stuff. Just like your doctor says, don't Google your symptoms, you know, come and talk to me. The pastor's here would encourage you, if you have Bible questions, come and talk to us. We may not have the answer. We might know where to look. It'll help us get to know you better. So that's part of the reason why we're here. So um, that's the first thing. But also I want to remind us all that the Bible is meditation literature. That means it's something that you read, and that you read again, and that you read again, and you ponder it, you chew on it, like a a cow chews on cud. So today we're going to respond by doing a little of that in the practice of what's called Lexio Divina. This means divine reading, and this practice has been done by Christians for a very long time. In this practice, we remember that the Bible is not something that we master. It's something that God uses to become the master of us. So I'd like us to participate in some Bible hearing together through the practice of Lectio Divina. This is going to be a very abbreviated practice today. And um, it's a technique you can learn, but if you're interested, this book, Meeting God in Scripture has some guided resources for it. God, what do you have to say to us today through your word? Give us ears to hear, amen. The story is from Mark 4. Mark is one of the Gospels, it's a biography of Jesus. And this story happens right after Jesus has been teaching the crowd and then just the disciples. So I encourage you to listen, and as you listen, let this story play in your mind like a movie. That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In Lexio Divina, we begin with meditation on the text. So I invite you to continue looking at those pictures you had in your mind of this. And I'm gonna ask some questions to help develop those images in your mind. So imagine you're a fly on the wall or a fly on the mast, we might say. Imagine the disciples in a furious windstorm with their boat filling up with water. Let's think about the sights and sounds. What do they see? The other disciples trying to scoop water out of the boat? It's hard to move, right? The boat is tossing and the waves are getting higher. They're probably unable to see land because of the wind and the rain, the dark clouds. What do they hear? The loud noise of the wind and the faint sound of voices trying to shout over it the water heaving around the boat, that sound of the ocean, the, the water swelling, and then the drop of the boat on the water. What do they smell? The smell of damp wood, soaked ropes, each other's sweat as they work hard to try to keep the boat upright. What do they feel on their skin, the waves, crashing on their face, getting in their eyes, being cold from the wind and the rain, and their their garments are clothes too, they're soaked to the skin. What feelings might the disciples have had in this? Move to the moment right after Jesus calms the storm. The wind died down and it was completely calm How does this feel? How does the sensation of the stillness of the boat change? The noise is gone. The waves are calm. What might the disciples be thinking? And then let's ponder together what Jesus said to the disciples. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I don't think Jesus was scolding the disciples here. Maybe he is reassuring them to let go of fear, to always trust him. Maybe he's smiling. See, you can trust me, even with the wind. What does this tell the disciples about who Jesus really is? So now we move into a time of response as we respond to the Spirit's invitation to us in this story. If Jesus is standing before you today saying, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? How can you relinquish your fear today? To Christ who was present with the disciples in the boat, obviously not concerned? How can you relinquish any anxiety you have today? Jesus is with us through the presence of the Spirit. And just as this story is a reliable story for us, we are invited to enter it today in this story and that to carry on this experience of being on the boat with the disciples into our life. What is the boat in your life? What is Jesus saying to you? As you think about that, We'll respond in song. Number 525, Wonderful Words of Life.